You know, being in uh, Detroit, we're so close to Canada. I mean, we're immediately across the river from Windsor, Ontario. And uh, my spiritual director, some of you may have seen him on the air in some of our shows, uh, Father Paul's Canadian, and he always cracks up about uh, when Americans say God. And he's always going, God, uh, when he talks to us. And I never heard it before, but now every time I say God, now he's made me self-conscious. Whenever I say, uh, you know, Pray for us, the Holy Mother of God. So, <laughs> so I can I can thank him for that. But uh, hear the accent every now and then. Um, uh, I'd like to pick up with a thought. The uh, uh, paragraph uh, of Kosti Kanubi uh, to show how important this is. Um, paragraph fifty-seven, and as we ta- as we move into this particular talk about contraception. Obviously, it's difficult to talk about that, not mentioning the HHS mandate, uh, the Obama, Kathleen Sebelius, traitor, Catholic uh, 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 Secretary of Health and Human Services. Um, But I think it's also important to understand, in relation to that, how we got here with this whole HHS thing. Uh, And I would also just caution that I think it's important to understand that the role of uh, uh, bishops in the church in particular, uh, while opposing immoral laws and encouraging people not to follow them uh, and to fight against them is a very good and laudable thing. It is not the only thing that needs to be done. As a matter of fact, it's the secondary thing that needs to be done. Bishops are not protectors of the Constitution. Bishops are promoters of the teachings of Jesus Christ. And in reference to that, I would like to read you paragraph uh, 57 from Kosti Kanubi. Again, remember, this is a letter addressed to the bishops, an encyclical, uh, 56 and 57. 56. Since, therefore, openly departing from the uninterrupted Christian tradition, some recently have judged it possible to solemnly, solemnly to declare another doctrine regarding this question. The Catholic Church, to whom God has entrusted the defense of the integrity and purity of morals, standing erect in the midst of the moral ruin which surrounds her, that's 1930, imagine what he would say now, in order that she may preserve the chastity of the nuptial union from being defiled by this foul stain, contraception, raises her voice in token of her divine ambassadorship and through our mouth proclaims anew any use whatsoever of matrimony exercised in such a way that the act is deliberately frustrated in its natural, there's that word, natural power to generate life is an offense against the law of God and of nature and of those who in, and those who indulge in such are branded with the guilt of a grave sin. That's number fifty-six. So if anybody tells you, well, the church doesn't say this, yes, most certainly. Just you know what? You want to shut down a liberal? Tell them a fact. Uh, just say number fifty-six, Costi Canubi. Number fifty-seven, and this is extremely important. We admonish, therefore, priests who hear confessions and others who have the care of souls in virtue of our supreme authority and in our solicitude for the salvation of souls, not to allow the faithful entrusted to them to err 
regarding this most grave law of God. See, notice the mention of law again. Much more than they keep themselves immune from such false opinions, in no way conniving in them. If any confessor or pastor of souls, which may, God forbid, lead the faithful entrusted to him into these errors, or should at least confirm them by approval or guilty silence, let him be mindful of the fact that he must render a strict account to God, the supreme judge, for the, note the word, betrayal of his sacred trust. One who betrays is a traitor. Betrayal of his sacred trust, and let him take to himself the words of Christ. They are blind and leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both fall into the pit. So, oh, but for that kind of church speak today, right? Up until 1965-ish or so, 68-ish or so, this is how the church spoke. And this is why everybody who's a big promoter of the spirit of Vatican II doesn't want you reading these things. They want you reading the gobbledygook of what some person at the USCCB vomited out on a piece of paper and made it so ambiguous that the devil himself couldn't figure out what was being said. So just remember, 56, if a layperson comes up to you and says, well, the church doesn't really teach that, say, oh, yes, I'm sorry you're mistaken about that. I'd refer you to paragraph 56. of from Pope Pius IX. Yes, very good. See? <laughs> she gets a bonus point. <laughs> And if someone comes up to you and says, uh, well, you know, if you say father or you go to send a letter to your bishop or your auxiliary bishop and say, no, we really need to be preaching these things. You need to be teaching them to the young men in the seminaries. They need to come out preaching them and you need to back them up, not ship them off to, you know, the parish of Our Lady of the Garbage Dump in the corner of the diocese when they preach it. And if you get a letter back saying or a comment back, as many people have gotten in the back of the, the church, the vestibule after mass, well, there are many people who are upset by that. You say number 57 of by when? Excellent. Number 56 is for the laity. Number 57 is for the ordained clergy uh, from the mouth of a pope in a document that enjoys the uh, ordinary uh, infallibility of the magisterium of the church. By the way, as uh, Cardinal Burke said in Rome in October of 2010, he was archbishop then. That was about three weeks before he was uh, uh, raised to the uh, dignity of a cardinal. Uh, he said that everyone who's Catholic, he makes this point, and I think sometimes Catholic laity miss this, and it kind of sucks some of our boldness out of us. Uh, the Everyone in the church owes obedience to the magisterium, including the bishops, including pastors in parishes. We all owe obedience. It is not the bishop's church. It's not even the pope's church. 
They are stewards over the divine message, over the divine teaching, and it is their duty to A, obey it, and B, spread it. And if they do neither one of those or only one of them, they fall down in their duty, and they too fall into the sin of disobedience. And as we hear right there from the Pope, they will be called to give an account to God. And if you ever read through the Gospels or the Old Testament and stumble across what happens, you know, the pronouncements by Almighty God against the leaders, it's terrifying what happens to the leaders who fall down. It's bad enough for us, but for the leaders who have allowed these things to happen and allow them to continue happening, uh, their eternal fates are beyond our imagination in horror. So we need to pray for the leaders but you never walk away from the truth. You never walk away from the truth, laity. As many of you know, if you've seen any of the Vortex episodes or any of the shows, I'm very fond of what Archbishop Fulton Sheen said, that uh, who's going to save our church? It's not up to the priests. It's not up to the bishops. It's up to you, the laity, to remind our bishops to be bishops and our priests to be priests. We want souls in heaven. That's the only game that matters. So... Now, moving on to contraception specifically. <clears throat> Let's do a little history on the contraception, uh, the, the contraception movement going back to uh, Margaret Sanger and all that. It's born out of the eugenics uh, movement um, when it actually became, when the idea of sort of widespread uh, birth control, uh, which is actually more birth prevention, uh, came into vogue. It came into vogue again in the end of the 19th century with the idea, you know, it was really born out of a, you know, a racial and social prejudice, particularly here in the United States, because so many of those uh, horrible, undesirable people were immigrating to the United States. You know, you didn't have this kind of thing in other countries because unlike other countries, America was sort of singular in its mixing and blending of all these cultures and different peoples coming from different shores and all of that. And the people who were kind of here and established, and this is our land and that kind of thing, didn't like the idea of, you know, look at those like dirty Irish guys. They smell and they drink and those dark-skinned people. I mean, you know, now that we've given the, you know, let, you know, let them off the plantations, I mean, we need to control them. Their numbers are growing like crazy. And those weird Mexican guys down there. So this whole kind of, you know, we want these undesirables controlled, contained, is where the eugenics movement comes from. And so in its origin, it's evil. And so it should be no surprise that what spews out of it, what spews out of uh, evil is always more moral vomit. And that's where the whole idea of a widespread contraception movement derives. And it really began as a sterilization movement. It was Margaret Sanger and one of her uh, friends who funded, uh, provided all of the funding and organized all the funding for a Catholic doctor by the name of Dr. Rock, uh, who actually invented the pill, the birth control pill. But that doesn't really come into vogue until 1960. Uh, it doesn't invent it until 1960. In 1965, the United States Supreme Court uh, overturns the Comstock laws, which had been, uh, to, and this is how recent this is, and this is in my lifetime, uh, up until 1965, the Comstock laws had prevented uh, the uh, uh, sale and use of contraception. 1965, and the Supreme Court overturns that law, which from a legal perspective was probably a bad law, but from a moral perspective was right on. And... Um, and then it's in that little sort of interregnum where all of a sudden 
So you know, notice the flow of things. Eugenics movement, hammering, hammering, hammering on the Church of England. The Church of England caves in in 1930. End of 1930, the Pope produces this encyclical. Then you've got essentially 30 years of now an advancement of the eugenics movement. Uh, when World War II comes along, the United States Army uh, military worried to death about all of their soldiers getting syphilis and gonorrhea and everything else are now flinging out condoms all over Europe and the Pacific. Uh, so the idea uh, becomes more embedded when the troops come back home. The idea of having sex with condoms, et cetera, is all, and this is just becomes part of the culture. And they come back home. The culture is becoming a little more debased by, you know, some fashions. And certainly, you know, the entertainment industry is already kind of starting to turn that, uh, even though there was the League of Decency and all of that that was Catholic, the, the, the culture is now beginning to kind of disintegrate just on the edges so into that whole maelstrom drops the pill in 1960. And at first, it's touted as a health benefit, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there are little trials on it. Interestingly enough, they did the trials on it in Puerto Rico. Because, you know, who really cares about Puerto Ricans if something goes wrong? So if something goes wrong, yeah, they die or get sick or maimed or something, who cares? So they do their trials on the Puerto Rican uh, uh, female population, they perfect it, they change the levels of the estrogen in the pill, and then they boom, they start producing the pill. And it starts to catch on and become widespread, uh, which forces the Supreme Court case of Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. The, the Supreme Court rules that you know you can't have a law prohibiting contraception between husband and wife. They establish this based on the uh, right to privacy which will rear its ugly head eight years later in Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. And, uh, and so in 1965, in 1960 to 65, culturally, the people are prepared culturally to receive contraception as an acceptable thing. Uh, culturally, from 1965 on, they're now prepared with another layer to receive it legally. So it's acceptable in the culture and it's acceptable in law. From 1965 to 1968, is this great big three-year kind of silence from the church. And everywhere the church, uh, you know, young married couples are going asking their priests, there's no council anywhere. Paul VI has a birth control commission in Rome uh, studying the issue. I don't want to get into all that. If you want to see some, we, did a, we produced a CIA called the Contraception Deception, which gets into an awful lot of this detail, which is, you'll look at it and kind of be like, you know, I watched it in the final production and just kind of had my jaw drop open going, wow, this really is how all this happened, isn't it? So if you want sort of a real good history of the Rockefeller involvement, Notre Dame's involvement, Father Hesburgh's involvement, the secret Planned Parenthood conferences at Notre Dame in the summers of 1965 and 66, all of that. Uh, uh, Father Hesburgh was, I don't know if it was unwilling or willing, but in either case he was the conduit for uh, the Rockefeller Foundation getting somebody on that Papal Birth Control Commission in Rome uh, to kind of tilt the proceedings in favor of the uh, eugenics and uh, contraception forces. Didn't work in the end, but that was nonetheless how much cooperation there was going on. It's horribly frightening, disturbing stuff. And uh, uh, so the Birth Control Commission is doing its thing. They hand their reports in. They do all that stuff. And then the Pope releases Humanae Vitae in 1968. 
When he releases Humanae Vitae in 1968, the problem was this vacuum. This is the problem with staying silent. There is no such thing as silence. There is no such thing as a moral vacuum. There's a lack of stepping into the vacuum by somebody, but when you don't step in, someone else does. So there is no such thing as a moral vacuum. Uh, there's just a lack of moral boldness. And when the, uh, what had happened theologically uh, was with the culture prepared for it and now it passed the law, it just seemed like, you know, this is a new thing. You've got to remember, we're all used to the idea of contraception and the evil in the church's teaching has been talked about. But back then, you know, the average Catholic couple, particularly young couple, they don't know anything. They're just going to their priest. The, the, the tidal wave that would engulf the church from the misapplications and misinterpretations of Vatican II hadn't even set in yet. So, you know, people are still running off in their little leave it to beaver kind of world, you know, going up, well, Father, what about blah, blah, blah? Well, Father has been kind of indoctrinated in seminary uh, and all the chatter among the clergy that it sure seems like with, you know, the Supreme Court overturning it and the culture accepting it and particularly the pill because we're not talking about something artificial here. And this was the great kind of uh, rationalization. We weren't talking about something artificial like an IUD or a condom or something like that. We're talking about a pill which takes the natural chemicals of the body and just sort of reverses them, moves them around, switches them around, and produces what would be a natural effect inspired by a pill. So some people are sitting around thinking, well, that, what's any different from that from taking an aspirin for a headache? You know, you're just altering chemistry so you can have a desired outcome biologically. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how this was all kind of presented and generally understood. So, uh, and this is how it was being talked about privately in private council with couples and priests. It was being chatted up like this in seminaries and in religious houses of formation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the fact that it took three years between Griswold versus Connecticut and Pope Paul to actually release uh, Humanae Vitae was plenty of time for hundreds of thousands of Catholic couples, probably millions, over the course of the entire Western world to simply continue hearing that this is going to be okay. No, it's all right. You can go ahead and use contraception. Uh, you can go ahead and use the pill. They're going to overturn that, like, you know, later on, next year or the year after that. They're going to change that teaching. This is what everybody's being told. So, of course, hey, you know, the idea of the, uh, uh, the, the problems with contraception is never talked about. Uh, artificial birth was never talked about. So the Catholic laity now is prepared to not only sort of hear this as like a neutral academic thing, like you're sitting in a class just hearing, you know, that, you know, uh, whatever the square root of pi is, whatever it is, and you just have the information, but you're now actively engaged in this. So now the average Catholic couple now has a dog in this fight. They're not just sitting hearing information neutrally, like factual-based information in a history class, but they are now going out living their lives and doing things based on what they've been told. So now there is a willing embrace of the idea of contraception. Because, let's face it, on the one hand, yes, children can be sometimes burdensome. They can be difficult. They are all these things. Problem with the culture is the culture focuses only on those things and gives virtually no reference 
to the divine origin of the child, uh, you know, that comes from God as a gift, as a, all of these things, the great beauty of children isn't talked about. Culture focuses on this. You know, if you have nine children, you can't buy a boat. If you got two, maybe you can. Uh, you can't go on a vacation if you have to feed 13 mouths, but you can go to the Bahamas and then hang out in Sicily for a month and a half if you don't have any children. And while we're at it, why don't you deny your motherhood and, you know, we'll uh, go out there and you get a good paying job and I will too. And we'll both run off and do whatever we want for two months. The whole mindset of what the idea of marriage is with family, children, that all of this is a reflection of not only Christ and the church, but the love and the unity within the Holy Trinity. All of that is abandoned. It's all swept aside. Essentially, 2,000 years of sacred tradition and history is just put on hold, put on pause, stuck on the shelf. And now we get to have sex as much as we want without having to put up with any of the consequences of it. And that's what this mindset starts to become inured into the minds of lay Catholics. And it's against that backdrop on July 25th, 1968, that all of a sudden, bam, Pope says no to pill. Goes flying across the front page of the New York Times. And here comes the problem. There was an instant rebellion on the part of Catholic theologians, and I put theologians in air quotes, theologians who really launched the attitude of rebellion in the, in the church, the public face of the rebellion, came against the teachings of contraception. Uh, and then everything after that. Everything just fell apart after that. Because the idea of, you know, what is supreme in the church? It's obedience. Because obedience comes forth as a fruit from humility. And if you don't have obedience, you don't have humility. And if you don't have humility, you have pride. And pride goes before the fall. So in the absence of obedience to the teachings of the church, to the magisterium, you have an absence of humility and everything falls apart. Because the faith is based on obedience. Christ became obedient to, to him even unto death on a cross. Obedience is absolutely the case, which is why Cardinal Burke said, even the bishops owe obedience to the magisterium of the faith, of the church. Um, so, this whole storm gathers. You had people like uh, Father, again in quotes, Father Charles Curran, uh, theologian at Catholic University of America, and all of a sudden the whole media gets involved in this. Now, uh, remember now again, we're talking about 1968, the predominantly the television news media is just getting into its stride. You know, they covered, they, they kind of came of age with the assassination of Kennedy at the beginning of the decade. They followed all of those proceedings. The Vietnam War was escalating. They're covering the civil rights thing. All of a sudden, there's a mindset in the media, the television guys, the Dan Rathers, the Walter Cronkites, that whole crowd, that we are kind of the giants of setting the tone of how the culture will think and respond to things. You know, we, we're going to cover the moon landing next year. And, you know, we, we are it. We sit on the precipice of history and we direct your thoughts to where they want to go. There's great arrogance in the news media industry. Uh, I was in it for 20 years. I know all about it. And uh, uh, so all of these things are combining together. And particularly in the day, the news media, television news media, is seeing itself as the uh, sort of the champion of the little guy. You know, it's you know, the, the, the big, bad, mean Republican Party trying to advance war in Vietnam. The, uh, 
uh, you know, the, the, the military industrial state. We have to fight against that. We have to fight against the white uh, majority trying to suppress the, the, the blacks with the civil rights thing. I'm going to get into all that. I'm saying this is the mindset that develops. So whenever the little guy, sometimes legitimate, like in the case of the race, uh, the, the race problems, racial problems in the 60s, uh, when the little guy comes along, the news media feels it's their duty to jump in and defend them. Well, it is almost always the case in the mind of uh, the news media that if there is an institution, the institution is bad. And if a person has something uh, that is challenging the institution, then this person is the victim slash hero and their cause must be championed. So it becomes kind of an almost knee-jerk reaction that if an institution says something, institution bad. So what institution says is bad and must be rallied against. And that becomes the mindset. So immediately when the Pope, who I mean you can't get much more institution than the Catholic Church, uh, the Pope says no, well that means we have to say yes. So they start covering all of these stories. They start covering all of the Father Charlie Curran, who uh, uh, you know, gets temporarily removed from his teaching office at you know, Catholic University, eventually is forbidden from teaching at all. He teaches at Southern Methodist, I think it is now, or Baylor. Um, uh, and this whole movement begins of everything sort of thrusting against the church over this teaching, over this teaching. And because that kind of now has set the, set the table that's how everything is now responded to in the church. Church says this, must be wrong, little person hurt, victim over here, big mean, meany old church and pope and cardinals, and little person just trying to love whoever they want to love. And that's the narrative. And that's the, and that's the narrative. That's how it plays out every single time. Um, so... Uh, so let's get into the specifics, and those are sort of the cultural, legal, all that kind of stuff of contraception. Let's get into the theological. Contraception is evil because it frustrates the natural law. It frustrates the natural law because it is designed, uh, uh, in the mind of the great designer, sex has the procreative aspect to it by its nature by its nature. That's what it does. We know that simply on a biological level. Two animals over there, bunch of little baby animals. Same thing with us. Now, beyond the question of nature, there, we also get into kind of a higher theological purpose that human beings are ordered to multiply is clear from the book of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is part of the, uh, of the plan of God. Why? Well, whenever somebody is born, that person, uh, because they are made to the image and likeness of God, has the ability, almost every time, they may suffer some you know, mental something or other, they can't or they die early, but you know, the vast majority of people uh, when they are born, have the ability, because they have intellect and free will, to fulfill their end, which God has ordered for them, which is to choose him for eternity. And in so doing, every person born becomes a potential future citizen of heaven. 
And if they are to be a future citizen of heaven, they need to be instructed, they need to be raised in the faith, etc., raised in the truth, and all of these things. So you have more than just the dimension of the biological here. You have the dimension of the spiritual. You know, our bodies will die, go into the earth, and rot and corrupt and be icky and you know, be McDonald's for worms. But uh, our souls will continue. The reason, as a matter of fact, is a little side, uh, if you ask anyone who's older, uh, and some of us are older, uh, <laughs> small ER, <laughs> when you ask somebody, you know, boy, do you really feel like you're 62? Yeah, inevitably, what's the answer you hear back? No, not at all. I don't feel like I'm 62. And, uh, you know, the famous, my, my dad says to me, he's 82 and he lives with me, and he's in perfect health, he's great, everything, he's just deaf as a doornail. But you uh, <laughs> can always know when he's home because you see the mortar shaking out of the bricks in the house because the TV's on. Um, <laughs> love you, Dad. Um, <laughs> but you can't hear that, so that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, he says to me oftentimes, he goes, well, I just can't, I, I look back and I just can't imagine just how fast the time has gone by. He goes, I look in the mirror and I'm like, yeah, that's 82 looking back, but, you know, I don't feel 82. And the reason nobody, when you get older, actually feels their age is because our souls don't age. We are forever what we are. Souls don't grow old. So you have that sense of sort of the, the now the continual, the sameness of it. And the older you get, the more kind of disproportionate it feels. You know, you're, you're youthful. Your soul is youthful, always. But your body's like, well, you know, your body went off on some booked a different flight. <laughs> it's like, well, you're supposed to be sitting next to me here in business class, not wherever you are on the plane to. Uh, so because of the spiritual dimension of who we are, you know, that's what we're created for. We're created to be children and sons and daughters of God. That's what our, what our end is. And when God establishes a nature to something and it has an end, to veer away from that end has all kinds of cataclysmic results. It has cataclysmic results spiritually as well as materially, temporally. And uh, lots of people will say, you know, they'll, they'll make the church's uh, argument against uh, uh, contraception. Uh, and they'll argue it out on a theological term. Say, well, don't try to foist your theological stuff on me. Well, uh, <laughs> it's not just a matter of theology. If you want to sit and discuss with a Catholic the theological implications, well, by all means do. But remember this, whenever you're talking about Catholic teaching... To avoid Catholic teaching, because it is the truth that comes from God, to avoid it, it has implications in this life and the next. With a Catholic, you can sit around and discuss the implications in the next life. With someone who doesn't want to accept the teaching as it is in itself, you turn your discussion to the implications in this life. And let's talk about those for a moment. What has contraception wrought on the population? We're talking about abortion later in the day, so we'll leave that aside for right now. Uh, but what has it wrought on the population? Well, if you look at, for example, uh, uh, human life cycles, 
Human life cycles are driven largely by human nature. When you're young, you live and behave a certain way. <laughs> we'll not go there. Um, <laughs> and uh, as you get older, hopefully you mature and you make different choices and your life follows a certain way. And your life is following a certain way. Even if you want to reject all the spiritual dimensions of those things, live as, live as an atheist or whatever, you still, by the nature, by the box that we're in as human beings, we still progress a certain fashion. We all do. Our bodies age, you can't stop it. You have to pay a mortgage or a rent or something or you're homeless. You can't stop it. Certain realities just come crashing in and you have to conform to these. Or you step outside of the box and you commit suicide or you know, go live as a homeless person under a bridge or something. But since the vast overwhelming majority of people don't choose to do that, then there are certain ways we have to live. The ways we live are determined by our nature. Our human nature produces a cycle of life for us. Four-year-olds aren't having children. Eighty-four-year-olds aren't having children. So the way we live and our natures dictate a certain human cycle. From these human cycles emerge, among many things, economies. Economies emerge from human cycles, not the other way around, which is the case if you're Obama. But if you're not Obama and you let the world flow the way it's supposed to flow, you will notice that economies emerge from the choices people make in life, the way we live, what our natures are. So uh, our human cycles dictated by our natures. When you interrupt a human cycle and you alter it, and you alter it in a sort of almost devastating fashion, you are going to have economic effects that are devastating because the economy flows from the cycle. Break the cycle, you break the economy. And let's break this down. If it is the natural human cycle to marry relatively young, and have children, those children now produce economic needs. You have to buy diapers, you have to buy houses, you have to you know, do all the things you do with younger children and then as they grow older provide for those means for them as well. All of those needs in the temporal world, I'm talking just temporal, all of those needs in the temporal world produce other needs because you have to, in order to buy the diaper, someone needs to make it. And for someone to make the diaper, somebody has to go out and do whatever it is you do to make a diaper. And somebody has to market it. And there has to be television stations to air commercials to show you that Kimberly Clark is better than Huggies or whatever it is. And all of these things happen. It's the natural cycle of an economy based on the natural human cycle. And the natural human cycle, remember, our nature is that in the act of, uh, of sex that generally, generally, children are conceived. And... As they're conceived, they grow up and you start to populate. Okay. Before 1960, when you looked at the average size of a family, before the pill, looked at the size of the average family in the United States compared to today, you have cut the number of children by between two-thirds and three-quarters. That's devastating. In 1972, there were... 38 million houses, buildings, houses, in the United States that had three or more bedrooms because you needed that many 
bedrooms because you had that many children. In 19... Uh, sorry, 2005, I got my numbers right, I might have the year wrong, but it's very, very close to there. In 2005, there were 72 million households, houses, buildings with three or more bedrooms. And yet the number of people with children to fill those houses had stayed the same at 35 million there was no change over the course of 45 years of uh, people needing those houses. What crashed in the economy three years ago? The housing market, the bubble. The cycles of the economy flow from the cycles of human life. So, what happens is the economy begin, uh, the population begins to age. If it were, God bless, if it were not for the immigration that has happened in the United States, some of it illegal, some of it legal, but another topic, if it had not been for that, the American population would be in decline. Not just the same numbers not growing, would be in decline. We have, because we're the United States, and that's kind of our tradition with the immigration and all of that, we have this sort of slather over our problem. But our population has, is barely growing. Because of immigration, our fertility rate is 2.1. And 2.1 is the fertility rate that is considered the absolute floor of the replacement rate for a population, for a civilization. That for every mom, there will be a child. For every dad, there will be a child. And then you have point one, uh, children because of you know, childhood deaths and diseases and accidents and things like that. So in order to replace mom and dad, mom and dad must produce at least one of themselves and a little bit more for all the uh, horrible tragedies of life that occur uh, to some young people. So America's population fertility rate right now is 2.1, which is, that's it. It dips below that, it starts to shrink. But the problem is that as the fertility rate stays even, and it does stay even, the numbers within that block of 310 million people, the aging is happening. The population numbers aren't going down, but the population itself as a whole is undergoing a significant change. Because at the old end of that population are many, many people. And on the short end of that population, of that 310 million or so, are fewer young people. Those fewer young people are, uh, uh, are not able to contribute into, for example, this group's retirement anymore. They can't pay Social Security. Right now, at this particular moment in US history, the so-called Social Security lockbox, which is a phantom notion, uh, has a certain amount of money in it, and the money coming out being paid to people is slightly less than the money going in from people. But in six years, in 2018, we hit the break-even point right there. In 2018, there will be the same amount of money going in as the same amount of money going out. You now have a stagnant Social Security fund. 
And in 2019, the scales tip the other way, that more is going out than is going in. In 2028, do the math. I know that sounds like forever for all of those of us who were born in the 1900s. <laughs> 2028 sounds like zillions of years away. 2028 is 16 years away. There will be no money in Social Security. So if you are 48 or older uh, or younger, you have no Social Security money. Don't even bank on it. It won't be there. Problem two. As the population uh, ages and the money from young people who are the ones working and buying fridges and cars and houses and all these, this economic activity that happens, while all of this is going on, because there are fewer people, thank you contraception, because there are fewer people, you now have less and less of this activity happening. 60 million people buy more refrigerators and cars than 3 million people. And so you get into a contraction. This is all masked right now for the next few years because the numbers, the numbers are still masked by one, the immigration numbers, and two, because that baby boom generation was so gigantic in its size that the population remains stable. But think about that in 16 years. Do you know right now, I think it's 100,000 100, uh, World War II veterans die every year. 100,000. I mean, how many, you know, I'm sure that number is going to taper off sometime soon. There is not an infinite number of World War II vets. So, again, it's all masked right now. But you're, we are going to reach, as a culture, as an, as an economy, we're going to reach a critical mass where all of a sudden there is this just violent drop-off. And right now, it looks to be somewhere in the middle of the next decade. The problem is, you can't reverse this. You reach a point in the cycle that there's simply no pulling back from it. How would you possibly produce enough people, enough human beings, instantaneously to get them to be born, fed, nurtured, grown up, hope they don't kill themselves or die of some sexually transmitted disease, be educated enough to the, or get become imprisoned or go to jail, drugs, whatever, all the horrors of society now, remove all those things, how could you possibly produce enough people so that in 20 years, when 16, 17 years, and this is about to happen, you all of a sudden have this massive influx of like 20 or 30 million people who've just all of a sudden shown up in the economy and all want to buy a car. You can't reverse these trends. You certainly can't reverse them in any sort of near, near term to be able to rescue it. Think about what happened to Europe after the Black Death. The only thing that saved Europe, if you're looking at it from an economic standpoint, is that the Black Death uh, happened kind of across the board to all age groups. But that's not going to happen here. There's a huge glut of old people, and they're going to die much sooner than these people, than the younger people. If you take the, that magic little number of the fertility rate, which is a direct function of contraception, and you look at that across all of Europe, for example, uh, where 
only from the Muslim countries has there been any sort of idea of immigration. The fertility rates in Europe are across the board below what they need to be. So I was sitting up one night and I thought, wow, you know, this whole Greece thing, I wonder, why is Greece itself falling apart at a faster rate than everybody else? So I went, started doing some investigating. These computers are marvelous, what you can find out. So I went through and looked. Greece has the lowest fertility rate in Europe and has had for over 12 years. Greece actually tried to install a pro-family thing to encourage people to have children in the 1960s and 70s. Somebody had in their head in the Greek uh, world of academia, in the academy, that they sort of looked down the road and went, uh-oh, when that fertility rate drops below the replacement rate, you're in trouble. 1.2. It's almost less than half of what it needs to be. It's irrecoverable. It's not possible to recover from that. So when you have a government on top of it that's a socialist government that just takes everybody's money and throws it over to everybody else, you can't sustain that. It's not sustainable. Problem is, you've created an entire population that wants that. And when you try to take it away from them with your austerity measures, they riot in the streets. That's what we saw in France. Now, word from Italy with a 1.4 fertility rate. Spain, 1.3. Portugal, 1.4. Replacement rates, uh, fertility rates. The entire world economy is being transformed and destroyed because the human cycles that give birth to those economies have been altered and devastated by contraception. In the United States, why do you invest, when you're older, why do you invest uh, your retirement money in something that's shrinking? Well, you don't. So what do you do? You take your capital and you invest it overseas in an economy that's growing. Because you know what? I'm 73 and I, need, I live on a fixed income. I can't be giving my money to this auto company or that bank or something when they're going out of business, everything, because the, econ the economic cycle has been wiped out because of the choices of the human. So I take my money and I invest it overseas because I have to, because their economies are growing. Not for very much longer, but their economies are growing. So as you look around the world, the contraceptive forces have marched very, very solidly and created this entire contraceptive global mentality. So that now, even among what used to be rapidly growing populations, they have slowed dramatically. They've slowed dramatically. China obviously is a different exception because they, you know, if you detect a child in the womb, they kill it. But uh, with the exception of that, India, all the great numbers and populations have all shrunk dramatically. I'm sorry, they haven't shrunk. They're in the process of slowing down. So, again, it's not just the raw number of like 300 million people in the United States, 310 million people. It doesn't, it's, that's true, but you have to look beyond that number and dig down into it and unpack it. So, as the 
pop, as the much larger share of that number is older and dies, a smaller number comes in to replace it. And this smaller number is uh, reproducing at even a smaller rate. So what happens is that the world population will continue for I think it's another 40 years growing and then all of a sudden it will reach that zenith and then the plummet will begin. Now, for some of us, I certainly hope I'm not around when I'm 90 uh, to see that going on, but your children will be. And the economic fallout from that will be disastrous. Will be disastrous. This is going to happen in the middle of this century. So you can see the sort of phony baloney stuff going on back in the 1960s when all the rage was the population explosion. There never was a population explosion. That was all part of the media propaganda war to advance sterilization and contraception. There was never a population explosion. Um, so as we're talking about contraception, sure, we can talk about it here theologically, about the future citizens of heaven, about saying yes to God, about saying yes to God. Imagine that from all eternity, from all eternity, God has desired that this person come into existence, whoever it is, little Joey. He's desired that little Joey come into existence. But he has bestowed on us, his creatures, the ability to cooperate in that great creative act, something the angels cannot do. The angels are not procreated, nor do they procreate. As Thomas would tell us, St. Thomas would tell us, each one is its own individual species because they neither beget nor are begotten. Every one of them is a distinct uh, creation from the hand of God directly. We, however... So that, that ranks angels. Angels exist in relationship to each other in a hierarchical order. That's why we can speak of St. Michael as the prince of the heavenly host. Or we can rank the angels in choirs of you know, cherubims and seraphim and thrones and dominions and powers and you know, virtues and archangels and angels. They exist with each other in relationship to each other as a rank. We, because we beget from each other, exist on this plane Angels exist in this order, we exist in this order. We are essentially carbon copies of each other. So we're in relationship to each other really as brothers and sisters. That's why God can speak of us, speak of us as a family. And because we're all the same species, that's why God can uh, redeem the entire race with one act. Because that redemption extends to every one of us by virtue of the fact that we're all related to each other. So... As we look at this, that means that God has willed for us to cooperate with him in the creative act. He has given us the powers of creation that he has withheld from the realm of the angels. He has not given that to them. So when we participate in the creative act and we frustrate it, and prevent a soul from a new human being from coming into existence, we directly prevent the will of God from being fulfilled. There was a person that from all eternity God desired come into existence, and we said, no. No. This act is for my pleasure, 
not for your greater glory, God, even though you gave me this power for that, I take the power away from you and I use it to my own end. That's damnable. And without repentance, that will earn damnation. It is a grave sin, a grave and serious sin to interfere with the will of God like that in any fashion. But this in particular, you're talking about denying the author of life to create new life. It's what he does. So when the church speaks of this theologically, it speaks on that level. But when we lay Catholics speak on this level as well, we have an expertise in this area that perhaps many theologians don't because it's their expertise to speak on this level. And certainly in obedience and love of the faith, we want to absorb this also. But we can turn over here as bankers, real estate agents who can't sell things, manufacturers of cars who find out that all of a sudden car sales are plummeting because there's not enough people to buy them. As economists, as accommodations, we can sit here and look at the effects of this on the temporal world and say, whoa, there's a big problem here. And when the economic crisis hit in 2008, when the economic crisis came through, interestingly enough, one of the very few times you would probably see the United Nations and the Vatican agreeing on something, they both said that it is the declining numbers, not the raw numbers, but the rate, the declining rate of people being born in the world that has contributed first and foremost to the economic crash that we're seeing. And... At some point, you simply have to say, this can only get worse. Now, let's talk about economies for one second. A couple minutes left before the break here in time to eat. But um, you'll notice very often when you see numbers, uh, economic numbers being transmitted. Oh, the, you know, the first quarter of the U.S. economy grew by blah. And, you know, there was this. And always wait when you see those numbers because in about... It, when they release the monthly numbers uh, and they project that, whatever, the month of February, well, if you take this number, the growth in February, and you project it over the course of the year, that gives us an annual economic growth of X percent. But uh, rarely, rarely does, does it get reported or at least get a big headline that those numbers are almost always revised. Matter of fact, I don't know that I don't, I, I, I watch this all the time. Because uh, I'm like that. And, uh, <laughs> and every single time you see these numbers, they are revised downward. So last quarter, January, February, March, the number that came out being touted was an economic growth rate of 3.2%. Yesterday, uh, Thursday, the uh, U.S. Department of Labor and Statistics and Economic Growth revised that number downward because they got all the data in, to 1.9%. People don't get hired. There aren't enough jobs because there's not enough of a demand, because there, aren't enough, there isn't enough in this population or that part of the population to want cars. All of these things move in cycles. 1.9% is not enough to be able to sustain an economy. And when that number came out, based with the 69,000 jobs created in March, I think it was March or April, May, sorry, May, or whatever month it was, last month, um, yeah, the May numbers, and it was only 69,000, the, you know, 
stock market dropped by almost 300 points. Uh, I say all of this not to be horrifying and terrifying, but to simply say that sin has an effect not only in this life, not only in the next life, but also in this. And while we are in the next life as a manner of speaking in a certain sense, we are most firmly in this life, uh, clearly in this life, and these choices, individual and collective, catch up to people. They catch up to economies. They catch up to all of this. Contraception and the mentality that has created in the, and the disembowelment, disembowelment of the theology and the great glory and the teachings of the church that it has caused in the spiritual sense is now being realized in the temporal sense. And again, as you look out through it, look out, there are simply not enough leaders in the world, political leaders in the world, who are speaking like this, who are saying what the case is, and they're trying to fix the economy on the margins. You can adjust this thing, and the Federal Reserve and the communists can do this or that all they want, and they can raise the money supply here, and they can take it away there, and they can tinker with taxes over there and raise the retirement age here two years or fight over some budget concern or whatever. It's margins. It's all happening on the margins. Your core problem is you simply have broken the human cycle from which that economy flows. And you can't tinker with the economy thinking that you're going to somehow be able to adjust it so that you have, you know, for every person over, you know, for every, you know, person under 50, that person's going to be able to support, you know, 30 people over 50. It's not going to be able to happen. It can't happen. And this is why there is a great deal of concern and whisperings, and if you go to the right blogs and you're reading and everything economically, you can't produce 20 million new young people consumers into the economy, and if the drain is the old people, well then, you gotta get rid of the old people. You gotta level the field back out. And that's the great concern. That's the great concern right now. Pay attention to those things in the next five years, six, seven years, when all of these Bilderberg groups are getting together, when all these G8 and G20 summits are happening, when people are talking about universal health care, all of these kinds of things. Be very, very careful. And as Catholics, educate yourself. And while you still have the freedom to say something, to get on a blog, to stand around and say, this is evil, that's evil, that's evil, you make sure you open up your mouth and say what's evil. That's your duty as Catholics. So remember, walk away from this thing, that sin has consequences in this life as well as the next. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Sacred Heart of Jesus. Immaculate Heart of Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So on that cheery note, enjoy lunch. <laughs>